And so, per the usual pattern in this kind of qualification list, in describing an appropriate elder or an appropriate pastor, Paul makes plain that the priority is character before activity. Remember we said that a good bit, that the primary concern in the New Testament is the man's character. And this is, this is especially true of the elder, and it's certainly equally true of the deacon. That more are we to be concerned with who they are necessarily than what they can do. What makes them as a godly man as opposed to what are their ministry abilities or in other words, character is always more important than charisma. Godliness is more important than natural skills. The primary New Testament concern when dealing with the offices of the church is character. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We have been working through the offices of the church. We spent two weeks looking at the office of the pastor, the shepherd, the elder, the overseer. And we will spend two weeks looking at the office of deacon. We were already in 1 Timothy chapter 3 in our little mini-series mini here, looking at the qualifications for overseers in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. And so we will continue in that text looking at the qualifications for deacon. Have you ever found yourself thinking about what it would be like to do someone else's job? If you had someone else's career, or role, or calling, or vocation, I thought about this the other day, and I think often when we have ideas about what someone else does, or their calling, or their vocation, and we begin to brainstorm about it, we, we tend to just reveal our ignorance on the subject, because we don't know what other people do. I did this just the other day. My wife and, well, my family and I were out and about, and as it happens, the inevitability of living in Elkhart, we got stopped at a train stop, and we were waiting for the train to pass. And I said to my wife, you know, had it been the Lord's will for me to be a bachelor, for which I'm very thankful that it was not, because, you know, my wife is awesome and my kids are pretty fun, but if that were the Lord's will for me, I think... Driving, being a train conductor would be fun. That's what I said. I mean, you get to see the country, and I began to just say very simplistic things. You get to see the country. That sounds fun. I mean, you get to travel, right? And then I began to, it hit me, I have no idea what train conductors do. I mean, not the slightest. I know that they make the trains go. But that's about it. So as I'm saying this, I'm going, actually, I'm not sure this is something I want to do. Because I have no idea what I'm getting into. 
By nature of being a pastor, I have had this conversation more times than, I mean, just it happens constantly. Not so much anymore, but it's not at all uncommon. When people will begin to ask me, tell me about your, your week. What do you do throughout the week? And what they mean is, what in the world does a pastor do when it's not Sunday? Or Wednesday night. That's what they mean. They're trying to figure out what a pastor does. And maybe there is even more mystery in your mind regarding what a deacon does than even what a pastor does. And of course, we understand that we do what we do because we are what we are. We We do what we do and why we do it because that's the calling that we have. And so you can't really separate the why from the what. But this morning, we'll be be focusing primarily on the what. What is a deacon? We'll be defining it. And then the next week, we'll talk more about specifically what the action steps of this office are. But this morning, we'll, we'll deal with it a little bit. So as you think about, as you think about what a deacon does... Maybe you have as much understanding as my understanding of a train conductor. It's a little more important for you, though, to understand this office than it is for me to understand the role of a train conductor, because we are all in partnership in this ministry and in this calling as a body of Christ. To misunderstand this office can actually get you as a congregant or me as a pastor or us as a church in a lot of trouble. And so this is a very important study, not just because you elect this office every year, but because these people are so important in the proper functioning of a church that we really need to understand who they are and what they do. And so that's what we're going to deal with over the next Two weeks. Let's read our text. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 8, and I'm going to read down through verse 13. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ. Jesus. This morning, I want to show you from this text as we understand it, this truth that deacons have a high calling to humble service. Well, this word likewise is helpful in understanding the connection to the previous passage. And so we've already laid the context for this a little bit, if you can just remember two weeks ago. Remember what Paul is doing in this book as he's writing to a young pastor who is experiencing difficulties at the church in Ephesus. This church has some very specific problems. Remember we said last week that 
Paul does not write necessarily in generalities when he's addressing in his letters, typically. He typically addresses in specifics. In other words, there's a specific issue, or the technical term is occasion that he is addressing. And the occasion to this letter is this young pastor who is feeling overwhelmed, discouraged, potentially even fearful, and he's attempting to get order back in the church in Ephesus. There are, there are passive men who are not leading. There are aggressive ladies who are leading in a way that they, that, that's not uh, in accordance with, with apostolic authority. There are specific issues regarding the eldership and the office of deacon. We know that there are probably unqualified elders, or people at least who are, who are vying to be unqualified elders. And then no doubt there are unqualified deacons. Otherwise, it doesn't make a lot of sense that Paul would go into this, specifically in rounding out their qualifications and character. And so as he did with the elder in verses 1 through 7 of this chapter, so he is going to give us a character profile of the deacon in verses 8 through 13. And you will note that there's a lot of overlap here in this passage. There are a few distinctions. You'll see those. We'll point them out. But as the elder is to be dignified, so the deacons likewise are to be dignified. In verse 8, we find primarily the, primarily the deacon's disposition or his character. Who is he supposed to be? And so, per the usual pattern in this kind of qualification list, in describing an appropriate elder or an appropriate pastor, Paul makes plain that the priority is character before activity. Remember, we said that a good bit, that the primary concern of the New Testament is the man's character. And this is, this is especially true of the elder, and it's certainly equally true of the deacon. That more are we to be concerned with who they are, necessarily, than what they can do. What makes them as a godly man, as opposed to, what are their ministry abilities? Or, in other words, character is always more important than charisma. Godliness is more important than natural skills. The primary New Testament concern when dealing with the offices of the church is character. So who they are is a greater matter than what they do, which is, of course, why Paul begins with who they are. As we consider this study, it's very important that we understand this word deacon. This word is the New Testament word diakonos, and literally, it was most commonly used for table waiters. So it's understood to be an act of service even in regards to remedial service. This is a general New Testament word for one who serves, and it was commonly applied to the one who waited the table either in the home was responsible for the serving of the food in the home, the preparing of the tables in the home. Coincidentally, this is why we actually have the deacons involved in the passing of the elements in the Lord's table. That is not accidental. It is in keeping with their ministry. One of the common issues when we understand this, this concept of deacon, especially as we see it in some churches, is that typically this, this idea of deacon or this office of deacon is immediately ascribed some sort of authority in the church. And while, of course, there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors, and we understand that an elder would be foolish to not learn from and listen to and work in tandem with the ministry gifts of his deacons, this word in and of itself bears no authority. This is a word 
for remedial service. Important service, because who, if you don't wait the tables, who, who gets left out? Everybody. Everybody goes hungry. This is an important role, but it is a role that does not inherently maintain authority. And I think perhaps even in our culture today, we need to understand the distinction between importance and authority. And so I want to give three common misconceptions that I see related to this role as deacon. And as I say this, these things, make sure you understand what I have just said. It's an integral role. That does not mean it is an authoritative role. First of all, you need to understand that, sh- that deacons are not shepherds. In other words, they're not pastors. There is a distinction between these two roles. Remember, this word elder or overseer actually does maintain the idea of some sort of oversight, authority, uh, uh, vision, leadership. Shepherding maintains the idea of feeding, which has the backing of the authority of God's Word. The idea of the eldership or the presbyteros maintains the the eldership authority with and alongside of one another in the congregation. The authoritating, functioning team in the church. This is the elder. So we need to make sure that we, we draw a sharp distinction between deacon and pastor. There are too many churches that these lines get blurred very clearly or very visibly and it's pretty obvious to see that the deacons function as pastors and it just ends up in functional disunity and outright spiritual disunity so shepherds are not deacons and deacons are not pastors While their character is to mirror one another, the primary distinction is both in the definition of the word, elder as opposed to deacon, or shepherd as opposed to deacon, or overseer as opposed to deacon, and in the application of their ministry. They are different. The primary qualification difference in these two lists is that the the elder is to be apt to teach. It does not say that of the deacon in the list. Secondly, deacons are not senators or parliamentarians through which the leadership of the church attempts to have to run bills and they get to either put their stamp of approval, vote it yes or no. Now, as I've already said, it would be foolish of a pastor to attempt to run a ministry in individuality. This is not God's intention either. There is safety in a multitude of counselors, but there are other churches who get themselves in trouble because the deacons are viewed primarily with political misconceptions. That there's this senate, and they're the ones who get to give the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And they're the ones who have to keep chains or checks on the pastors, which is not the same thing as biblical accountability. So secondly, deacons are not intended to have political ramifications, nor are they pillars of corporation like CEOs, CFOs, or COOs. And churches, especially as they tend to become larger, and this is no knock on larger churches, it's just larger churches have different issues than maybe smaller churches do, but a temptation can begin to become overly corporate 
We have to delegate everything. We have to have a manager for everything. We have to have a CFO. We have to have a CEO. And everybody has to be under somebody. And then we begin to create these levels of authority that looks no different than a major corporation. And everybody answers to somebody for something else because there's this top-down approach to leadership. When what we understand about biblical leadership, if everyone's doing their role and everybody in the church is doing what God has called them to do, is we Christians flip and we serve from the bottom up, not top down. This is the evidence of Christ, the illustration of Christ, the example of Christ, that those who lead are to be serving in the way that God has called them to serve. And so deacons are to be the model servants in the church. And the elder is to serve primarily in the church within his calling, the oversight and the feeding of the flock. Just like you are to serve according to the Spirit's calling in your life. God has designated you, like Paul says in Romans 12, each according to the measure of grace. God has apportioned out by His Spirit a measure of grace to you that you contribute back to the congregation. It's called your spiritual gift or your spiritual giftedness. I don't think it's just one. And so we all serve within the calling within the local church. And the calling of the deacon is to be the model servant in the church. So they are not to have this overly corporate, and you are not to have of them, this overly corporate mentality. So having understood this definition, now let us look at what Paul says of their qualifications. They are, first of all, to be dignified, which is what he says of the elder. He desires a noble task. It's a very similar word. This word dignified has the idea of respect or honor. The way they carry themselves and the way they live their life is worthy of commendation. They stand out in their dignity. They speak differently. They look differently. They act differently. They reach out to others differently. They manage their household differently. They stand out and they're worthy of honor. They are dignified. Secondly, they are not to be double-tongued. What I wrote for this, I just penned it down and jotted it down quickly. Their support matches their speech, or their speech matches their support. If the deacon is to be the primary model of service, of, of care in the church, or of, of service in the church, is the model of service in the church, then it is assumed that that deacon will support that church has the backing of that church and its leadership, stands for what that church stands for, moves where that church, is, that church moves. Otherwise, we do not have one serving the church. We have one acting in a vacuum. And it is so obvious to see when a deacon or the same could be said of an elder or anyone in the church when they go rogue from unity because you hear about it first. What they say to one person is not what they say to somebody else. What sounds good here doesn't sound good here. Their speech doesn't match their support. They are double-tongued. There's no room for gossip or tail-bearing or disclosing of confidentiality. I would just like to say on the behalf of Pastor Brandon and myself as the overseers, trying to serve in the way God has called us. I don't know that I have ever seen 
true support in a congregation on the level of deacon that we have at Grace Bible Church. And we take it very seriously. But we know, without a doubt, because there have been some low moments, especially in my, in my own life, as an elder, as a pastor, we know our men have our back. And I can't tell you what a gift that is to us and what a gift it is to you. It maintains health and unity in the church. Will Rogers, the great American philosopher, gives us a helpful phrase as we think about being double-tongued. An honest man is not afraid to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. <laughs> and nor is a deacon in his sincerity of speech. He is not addicted to much wine or greedy for dishonest gain. This maintains the idea of a selfless view of others' resources and relation to our personal self-discipline and appetites. In other words, a deacon is not going to take advantage of someone. You say, well, was that what, who would do that? You'd be surprised, but certainly it was happening here. One commentator says, two further comments forbidding wine addicts and men of insatiable appetites for dishonest gain are both expressed in stronger terms than even the case of overseers. This was perhaps no doubt because the deacons were likely involved in the visitation of homes which would expose them more pointedly to the evils and resources of others. And so as deacons in this age, in this church, were carrying out their responsibility and being in the home of the congregation, perhaps they were more tempted to take advantage of that individual's resources, which is why Paul says this. They must not, this, they share this with the elder as well, though it is in stronger terms, be greedy for dishonest gain or addicted to much wine. They must have an honest view of others' resources and a selfless view of personal discipline. So having noted their qualification, Paul then moves to their, it's like their doctrinal confidence. And so look with me in verses 9 and 10 at their at the deacon's confirmation, the deacon's confirmation, they must hold to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. They must first be clear in the truth. They must be clear in the truth. To hold fast to the mystery of faith with clear conscience. So as they are model servants in the church, and as they are rightfully and appropriately and leading in this support for the church, there should be no distinction in their personal doctrine and the primary doctrine of the church. And I say primary doctrine of the church because, of course, you understand within the realm of theology, there are lots of little nuances and, and there's some ways that things can, people can take things differently. But when it comes to the primary doctrine of the church, the apostles' doctrine, the, the clarity of the gospel, how one comes to faith, the, the priority of the word in the context of the church, what that looks like within the life of the church, these matters must be deeply assured in the heart of those who are deacons in the church. Deacon is not a role for one who is insecure in his belief. 
because he may just be approached about it. He may just be asked about it. They may be sought out. Why does the church believe this? And even if he cannot give a clear, distinct theological answer, he at least has a framework for why we believe what we believe. And at the end of the day, why do we believe what we believe? It's because the scriptures are true and the Bible has said it. So there must be a clarity in his personal truth. This does not mean that a deacon has to be an expert in personal theology or in systematic theology. But they must maintain biblical maturity to the extent that they can trust their own conscience biblically and the congregation can trust theirs as well. Because as we are reminded by Luther, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. So first of all, they must be clear in the truth. And secondly, practically, there must be a time of testing. Let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove blameless. This is essentially the equivalent instruction that he's given to the elder. You must not ordain a novice. In other words, don't rush someone to an office. And this is a common issue with churches. Maybe someone's been saved not very long, and we just rush them into an office because they seem charismatic, or they seem helpful, or they seem to have good gifts, or they seem to have good abilities, and we trust the ability rather than the character. So sufficient time of observation is necessary to prove standout character. You say, well, how long is that? It doesn't say. But in my personal experience, time isn't as much in the essence here as the nature of the person in question. In other words, it doesn't take very long to estimate and experience true godliness in somebody. They'll pass the, tra- the test pretty quickly if they're truly godly. Godly people stand out in an ungodly world. Godly people stand out in an ungodly church. Spiritually healthy people stand out like a physically healthy person. And so they are to be clear in their aspect of the truth. The congregation is to affirm that they are truly meeting in quality because of this time of testing. And then Paul seems to go back to the personal life of the deacon, specifically the domestic life of the deacon. So look with me thirdly in verses 11 and 12 at the domestic instruction given to deacons. Their wives likewise must be, likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Now, there is some controversy over how this word is translated, or this, this verse in verse 11 is translated. When he says, their wives likewise must be dignified, technically the Greek just reads, women likewise must be dignified. It is, it is not at all uncommon, and nor do I think the arguments are bad, I just don't, I don't think they're as good. It is not at all uncommon from this passage to be argued the concept of the, the New Testament deaconess, or a... a to, to be just clearly strict in the language, a woman deacon. Which I think to be clear with the scriptures, we have to say, according to especially Romans 16, the New Testament allows for women deacons. There's no, te- there's, there's, there's no strictly prohibitive passage for lady deacons. I just don't think that's what this passage has in mind. There are some good arguments 
But I think it's just a, a slight, slight more of a stretch here to read deaconess because clearly the man is the, the, or the deacon, not just the man, but the deacon in general is the concentration before verse 11. And then there is masculine instruction given after verse 11. Also, the word translated wife or woman is translated wife in verse 12. He must be the husband of one woman. So woman or wife can go either way here. It's an implicit instruction. So to argue that the language woman alone places deaconess in the passage, I think is insufficient. And thirdly, you actually see that he's essentially repeating himself if he is naming out a, a, a different kind of deacon, which there's no reason for him to do. And likewise, she must be dignified, not a slanderer. If he's still describing the entire office of deacon with both man and woman in view, he doesn't need to specify. He can just address them all at once. And he certainly doesn't need to repeat himself that she is to be likewise or dignified. So while I tend to think, biblically, I don't know really think, I think it's, it's the, the New Testament's very clear that there is certainly a place for women deacons. I just don't see it as clearly in this passage. Likewise seems to mean different things. The word women could be translated either way, woman or wife, and the, it makes no sense for the instruction to be repeated. That being said then, you say, what's the reason for all that? I think deacons' wives are being given instruction. And I think it's practical that deacons' wives would be given instruction. Why should they not be double-tongued? Because they're likely privy to similar information, private information, especially if they were doing the house visits with the man. In fact, I know of a ministry, I, I, I think it's an incredibly healthy way to do it, actually. I know of a ministry where hus a husband and a wife are deacons together, and they oversee the specific care of the, they together, this couple, or the deacon and deaconess over congregational care. It's an incredible way to do that. It's a practical way to do that because you have the balance of both female advice and male advice. But certainly in this passage, wives are to be dignified. They are to stand out. They are not to be double-tongued. They are to be clear in thought, not sober-minded, and faithful in all things. Which again brings us back to the incredible importance, the incredible importance of ladies, those of you who are married to a deacon or have been married to a deacon or will be married to a deacon, understanding your part in this. Because God's calling for him as your husband, you will contribute as his spouse. You're one flesh in this. And I, have, I, I don't have any instance in mind. Please understand that. We've not had to do this. But you understand that a, a deacon whose wife or a deacon himself who began to say things inappropriately or disclose information or be double-tongued and support here and not support here, that would be grounds for removal because that is not support. That is not service to the congregation. So it's very important that we understand the instruction to be instruction given to the husband and to the wife. 
And of course, there is parental instruction here as well. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Now again, I encouraged grace generally here because of course, no, fa no father, no husband exactly has everything together. And if we did, man, wouldn't that be great? But we don't. And so the, the enduring characteristic must be faithfulness in these things. He's doing his best to be faithful in instructing his children in the word. He's doing his best to be faithful in loving his wife as himself and cherishing her and nourishing her as Christ does the church. The family of that deacon as that man himself or that lady herself should stand out. And so should their parenting. So should the leadership of his home. This is something, I look at all of these things very carefully, but just so you know, when we consider men who I, people who are qualified to be deacon, this is one that for my, in my own personal life tends to separate the sheep from the goats. Because what a person, what a child thinks of their father is far more valuable to me than what perception I may have. Because that child knows that person a lot better than I do. What a mother, what a wife lacks in spiritual leadership in her home so that man will lack in his contribution to the congregation. And then finally, you look with me quickly at the deacon's commendation. This is an incredible honor. It's an incredible honor. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves. This standing is in place of the congregation. This is an honor of congregational recognition. This is an honor when the, the congregation itself recognizes qualification of character. Listen to this warning. A deacon should not emulate this character intending to become a deacon. That is a false motive. The deacons should just be this way because it's who they are. Nor should there be a comparison of character on the basis of this office. That will create superficial godliness. In fact, brothers, if you are attempting godly behavior in order to become a deacon and be congregationally recognized, then it is clear your heart doesn't befit the heart of deacon itself. Because this is an outgrowth of true godly character. Listen, the honor of a deacon is in service, not in status. The honor of a deacon is in service, not in status. And so please, brother and sister, avoid this political view of, well, that person's more important or better or whatever because they're a deacon. That person is called to greater humility and service and mundane responsibility in the church than you. And if you believe that you are above that, you are proving you are not qualified. And if you are unwilling to participate in the roles as deacon, the calling of deacon to care for the congregation, which again, we'll talk about a little bit more what they do in a few week, next week, 
but caring for the people, involved in the people. And if you only have this view of deacon like we talked about, it's political, it's, it's, it's senate, it's, it's pastoring, it's corporate, then this does not befit the mentality or heart of a deacon as well. A deacon is called to humble service. What does this church need? What do these people need? How can I contribute beyond just giving my opinion? Beyond just a stamp of approval or disapproval? What do the lives of these people need? Not just the administration of this church. Does the administration of this church require? So they gain congregational honor, true honor, humble service, and, and, and true recognition of that humility and of that service. Brother, sister, this just means that before the Lord, you are much more likely to hear the greatest commendation that a believer could be given. Well done, good and faithful servant. Not well done, good and faithful board member. Not well done, good and faithful giver of opinions. Not well done, good and faithful expert. Not well done, good and faithful committee head. Well done, good and faithful servant. And he, he gains great confidence in Christ and also confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Not only in, is the deacon's faith great benefit to the congregation, but it's a great benefit to the deacon himself or herself. Literally, now Paul is referring to the confidence that you can place before the Lord and your faith, and it goes back to that faith, not in yourself. Holding fast to your conscience, this faith with true assurance. And as you are more fully assured of that faith, so you will make those around you more fully assured of that faith. As you grow in doctrinal application, as you grow as a disciple of Christ, so you will multiply disciples around you. And that's what the servants of Christ do in the context of the church. And so where is the confidence of your faith this morning? This is a question that's applied to all, not just to those who are the, the nine represented deacons in the church. But are you actually participating and contributing faith the way that deacons are required to model, but you yourself are required to contribute? Remember what Paul says to Philemon, that he commends him for the sharing of faith. That God has called us all in the context of fellowship to contribute faith, share faith with one another. And so deacons are called to lead in this. So where is your faith? Brothers who are deacons now, where is your faith? Those who will become deacons in the future, where is your faith? Is it in yourself? Is it in standing? Is it in status? My friend, if you're with us this morning, where is your faith? Is, is it in the rock of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the secured work of Christ, and you hold fast to this with a clear conscience, and so you contribute this to the faith and culture of the church. Confidence in Christ himself, and so you live out that confidence and reproduce the character of Christ in the lives of those around you whether you're a deacon or not, but certainly being able to take your cues from those this church calls deacons. Let us pray.